He has been a consulting actuary all his professional life, working in South Africa, in the UK, Middle East, and across the rest of Africa. His work is primarily in financial reporting, M&A, and risk and capital management across life and short-term insurance. He has both life and short-term insurance practicing certificates, is a CFA chart holder, and has the PRM risk management qualification. Just about the talk today, um, the talk covers the debate around whether systemic risk uh, for insurers is important or not, uh, whether it's different to banks and how it, it arises. Uh, it tries to present a balanced view, hopefully, <laughs> uh, by uh, incorporating views from industry and the regulator, uh, including recent developments since the global financial crisis and AIG's failure. Uh, as you can see from the title, David will talk about dominoes and tsunamis and volcanoes. I'm looking forward to that. Just listening to, to uh, Suzette's uh, regulatory update yesterday, uh, it seems that, that things like systemic, systemically important des designations and uh, recovery and resolution planning is definitely coming to our shores in the very near future. She mentioned that uh, the Saab is actually working on a a um, resolution bill for systemically important financial institutions, including insurers. So I'm looking forward to the speed, uh, uh, to, to the talk. Thanks, and over to you, David. Thanks, Chad. Morning, everyone. Uh, the question for me is whether systemic risk in insurance is a volcano simmering away somewhere about to explode and destroy life as we know it, or whether it's a little bit of hot air or steam that we can safely ignore. I first started thinking about this topic some years back, actually in discussions with the FSB, including Suzette and others, and they kept saying, but what about the, the systemic risk in the insurance industry? Um, you haven't spoken enough about that, and we, we go away and we look for the empirical evidence of where uh, insurance failures had led to failure of other entities that had this massive big impact and we, we couldn't find it. We, we come back and we said, well, we haven't found very much, but here's some, some thoughts that are like, yes, but the, where, where's the systemic impact? We go away and do a little bit more research. And what we really found is that regulators have been quite concerned about systemic risk, particularly since the global financial crisis. But by and large, industry then anyway were, were very relaxed about it and said, there's, there's nothing to see here, let's move on. So I'm going to take uh, you through the progression of my thinking, my journey in trying to understand, try to reconcile these two views in, in systemic risk. Now, I've spoken a little bit about systemic risk, but maybe it's important just to define it. There are different definitions, but the key thing is to differentiate between systemic risk and systematic risk. Systemic risk is some sort of thing or event that's going to lead to a, a, a risk across the system. In our world, typically in the financial services world, but importantly, is also going to lead or may lead to problems in the real economy. That's when people start to get really worked up about it. It's not just that a couple of individual banks or insurers have failed, but we start to have big impacts on GDP and big impacts on unemployment because the costs involved there are massive compared to the failure of any individual insurers. So that, that's really the key thing and is the, the scary part out of the, the Great Depression in 1929 and what we saw during the global financial crisis. Systematic risk is different. It refers to overall market risk or the non-diversifiable risk, the risk that we learned more about at university, certainly when I was there. But the interesting thing is that some of the latest measures and calculations around systemic risk start feeling a little bit like systematic risk over again. So we'll, we'll touch on that a little later. Now, I did try to do some, some polls to find out what, what people thought about this. So I put a poll out on Twitter in August. I got nine responses which should tell you a thing or two about how many people follow me and maybe how many of those are actually in, maybe how many of those people care about systemic risk. And for better or worse, there was actually a relatively balanced view that there were a couple of people who said, no, this is significant. I don't know if that's the FSB people who monitor me and see what I'm up to. Uh, but by and large, there was a view that systemic risk maybe is actually somewhat important. Since then, I've also spoken to a lot of individual people, had lots of discussions, haven't put out a, a formal survey because the, the answers always felt more useful on a qualitative basis but also had uh, another poll running on my blog. And again, the majority of people, and this would be primarily people like you and me, you know, in industry rather than regulator, either said that systemic risk is significant, or even where the thought it was moderate, thought that we weren't paying enough attention to it. So my initial view from kind of, I guess, five, six years ago now that 
industry isn't worried about it. It's maybe moved on. Maybe people are a little bit more, more worried about it. Now, just again for clarity, these items are maybe related in some way to systemic risk, but they aren't really systemic risk. So group risk or contagion within a single group, uh, it may exacerbate systemic risk, it may lead to bigger losses, but that itself is not systemic. We need to really have risk across the entire financial service sector and really, as I almost said ideally, but let's not go there, uh, really across the, the real economy too. Concentration risk, be it you know, short-term insurance claims or market risk or credit risk, that sort of concentration itself is not systemic. And even just the question of probability of failure being high or low doesn't necessarily make something systemic, although more failure obviously may be a bigger risk. In discussing with some of my colleagues about this presentation, we went backwards and forwards a few times around whether we should also be worried about the impact of systemic risk and systemic failures and bank failures, for example, on insurers and how big a deal that is. So again, it's, it's related, but it's not primarily what I'm talking about. I'm trying to work out, do insurers themselves pose a systemic risk? Uh, uh. Now, this is a, a philosophical or moral point. I maybe just like you to kind of think about as we go through the presentation, and I'll come back to this right at the end. Would you rather be one of the 465 banks that the Federal Deposit Insurance Company closed after the global financial crisis, or would you rather be Bering's bank failed for idiosyncratic reasons all on your own? The fact that we know the name Bearings, and I haven't memorized all 465 individual banks. Would you rather fail because something you did specifically wrong, or would you rather fail because everybody's failing, there's nothing you can do about it? Now, I've actually been, I've, I've heard this conversation going around, know what happens if all these state-owned entities default, or what happens if government bonds default? And the typical answer is, well, everyone would be in so much trouble, we don't really need to worry about that scenario. And on an individual personal level, sure, I'm not, I get that totally. I also wouldn't want it to be you know, uh, 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 named and shamed individually. But from a societal perspective, it's actually far less damaging to fail individually in isolation on your own than it is to fail and maybe contribute to an extended systemic risk issue. Maybe a bit of a challenge, I don't have an answer, but just to think around which of these are, are we most comfortable and are we really comfortable with which one we're comfortable with. Okay, a little bit of history on, on failures. Um, occasionally, I annoy banking people by talking about how often banks fail, because banks fail a lot. In the 1970s, we had 50 banks. I wasn't around for much of that, um, and nine of them failed. Uh, and the little asterisk next to failed is, well, using fail here to be failed was needed to be taken over, with industry pressure or reserve bank pressure to be taken over, and so on. So it's a fairly loose definition of failure, but it's very clearly something you would not want to be involved with. Then from 1994 to 2004, that's probably you know, recent experience for most of us, 10 banks in South Africa failed. Now, that surprises a lot of people when I give that stat. I mean, obviously there's, well, I think that's more to the point, that doesn't include African Bank. But that is Regal and Sambo and uh, a few other sort of le lesser banks, certainly none of the major ones. Um, but you know, banks, banks fail. In the that, four years prior to the global financial crisis, only 10 banks in the US failed. There are about 6,000 insurers and about the same number of banks, maybe a few, few, few now banks in, in the US. But as a result of the global financial crisis, 465 banks failed and needed to get bailed out by the FDIC. And at that same period, 14 insurers failed. So you know, it is quite a dramatic difference. And as I said, there's actually a fairly similar number of banks and insurers. It's you know, five, 6,000, which is, is amazing. The, the annual rate of failure for insurers is uh, 1 30th over this period of what is for banks. Now, in fairness, this particular period was a very bad period for banks and probably overstates typical failure rates and maybe it understates typical failure rates for insurers. The research that I've seen shows insurers failing somewhere between 0.2% and 0.9% since the time somewhere between 1 in 100 and 1 in 500 years, which is probably sort of consistent with our own feelings and experience. We've had very few insurance failures uh, in South Africa. I can think of, of four, mostly just gone into creatorship, closed to new business and so on, so there may be some others. Uh, but just on those low probabilities, you, know, you would have seen the, the floods in, in the US in the last few weeks. And like a rule of thumb has been to try not to build inside the 1 in 100 year floodplain. Because even if there's a 1% chance of having a flood, if you've got a 30-year mortgage and you actually stay in the house for 30 years, the cumulative chance of you having a flood event is actually 26%. Now, we're actually, we should be able to get there, but it's still, for me, quite a surprising number. You go from 1% up to 26% just with the uh, matter of time. Now, this slide is mostly just interesting. It shows how, in the US, we've had this mass decline. So this goes from 1984 up to 2016, 2017 
we've gone from nearly 15,000 banks down to fewer than 5,000 banks over the course of the 30 years. We know the financial services sector has been growing, we know the banking sector has been growing, but the number of banks have been declining quite precipitously. So that shows that there has been this increase in concentration, which maybe should give us some concerns around too big to fail, uh, or at least increased size of individual uh, banks. In, from 1929 to 1933, I think there were around, I forget the number now, I think it was about 50,000 banks in the US, and of those, 11,000 failed. So yeah, the global financial crisis wasn't great. I think we're still a little ways away from the, the, the Great Depression. Um, and there are also UK examples. I mean, bearings are mentioned. You may not know that bearings failed in the late 90s, but it also needed a bailout in 1890. So UK banks have been relatively stable, but you know, there have been a long history of, of banks failing. So now the, the primary theory for a long time in the systemic risk world has been the domino theory. An individual entity fails and falls over and knocks over another entity which knocks over another entity. Now, it doesn't need to, to be the biggest entity, but the bigger entity it is, the more likely it is to knock over other entities with more force and can have this uh, domino or, or spillover effect happening. And the standard view has been that the size of entity matters and the degree of interconnectedness matters. It's more likely, more able to close other dominoes, more able to push those over. Uh, the, the substitutability of products is an interesting one. Again, that's looking to the ability of this systemic impact to affect the real economy. If the products that you're offering can easily be substituted by others, then there's less likely to be a lack of financial intermediation. There's less likely for people not to be able to find funding, get insurance cover, whatever. So that's another important component there. Now, it's also not true that it has to be a large domino that falls over. In fact, if you take a five millimeter domino, and each domino can typically knock over one about 1.5 times its size. Took that five millimeter starting domino and lined with 29 dominoes in a row, each time increasing by 1.5 times, you'd be able to knock over the Empire State Building. Assuming the Empire State Building didn't have any foundations, but you get the idea. Um, so this is a guy who does some research and he started with 1.5 uh, millimeter, and that's 13 steps, and he ends up knocking over a 50 kilogram domino. So sure, we, we, we get how this domino theory can work, but there's also one that's a bit difficult to understand because there are not that many insurance failures. It's actually quite hard to understand how the failure of an individual insurer would actually knock over another entity. The New York University Stern School or, or, or Business School says, well, they don't think it's the right question to ask, would the failure of this entity lead to a systemic risk event? Because it basically will never happen. They look more at, well, if the uh, financial sector is already under strain, if there's really a low confidence, there's really uh, 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 it's been an extended decline, what might that happen in that scenario? I think that also makes a bit of sense to me. So this is a few years old now, but the Geneva, Geneva Association, which is a pretty large body of, of insurance uh, uh, bodies, they basically responded to the views from regulators and the IIS and the Financial Stability Board saying, you insurers are also systemically risky. And first of all, well, insurers are not like banks. We don't do the same level of, of uh, maturity transformation. Uh, we don't have the same asset liability structures. We get our premiums up front. Our cash flows are often over a 30-year time period. We have liability-driven investments, or, or ALM. Uh, and that's either just matching your annuity liabilities or it's matching your better derivatives. But also for linked insurers and linked business where you actually are holding the exact underlying assets and you've got this massive balance sheet of assets and liabilities, but frankly, they are always going to move in line. They also highlight that the bailouts to the insurers during the global financial crisis really were tiny compared to the banks. And actually, 90% of those bailouts to insurers were for non-traditional insurance business. And we all think of AIG here. Because maybe you're thinking, when I said it's hard to find empirical examples of insurers being systemically risky, the little flashing light behind me should be saying AIG. I think in many ways that that's fair, but also it's, it's a bit misleading because what led AIG to fail was not traditional insurance activities, but rather the credit guarantees and the CDSs and so on, which I'm by and large putting to one side of this presentation because I, I think everybody agrees that does require a lot of very, very dedicated attention. Um, is it insurance or not? That's a separate debate. Um, the Geneva Association also noted that insurers around the world are generally much smaller than banks. They are small entities by and large. And the systemic risks are just they're structurally different on the way things work. Um, Kurt and I were talking just before this around the way a banking crisis resolves over a weekend and needs to get sorted before Monday morning. You know, a typical insurance crisis, if anything, will take place over a year or two. There's time to sort things out. The liquidity characteristics are just that very much different. 
Um, an example, and of course, since the, 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 the South Cape fires and the storms, there's been so many other cat claims and cat events in South Africa. Um, but this is showing how uh, this, this massive uh, hit, this massive non-life short insurance claim of three billion rand, um, and sometimes described as the worst category in South African insurance history, and they reckon sometime clients were going to be paid out about 800 million, uh, which 72 was the Cape damage and the rest was um, more the, 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 the fire damage. As a result of that, for the half year, sometimes earnings were up, I think, 14%. The underwriting ratio decreased down to 4.2%, but still within their 4 to 8% range. So the biggest insurance catastrophe that they've ever experienced, and they're still within their range of, of, of underwriting ratios. Even an event like this has got no hope, no way close to actually being systemically risky. Um, even the European Systemic Risk Board doesn't seem to be hyperventilating about the risks. They say that the liquidity risk or insured run is not considered a great risk or likely event. They do recognize that it may not always be the case. I think liquidity risk is going to be one of the themes that comes through this uh, several times. Maybe there's something around liquidity risk we need to be careful of. Um, they also recognize that other banking activities, by and large, aren't very large. Um, and maybe there are some linkages between reinsurers and the capital markets. But by and large, the linkages between one insurer and another insurer are, are fairly, fairly limited. I think that in France, uh, insurers are about, provide about one-third of bank funding, financing two banks, which maybe gets a little bit more interesting. And I think they invest in two-thirds of covered bonds in, in, in France. So again, more from the where they are investing, and if they stopped investing, that might be a bit of a, a warning sign down the line. Now, the systemically important financial institutions, and this is a US view of this, uh, basically created out of the Frank Dodd Act after the global financial crisis, and they allocated AIG or, or, or uh, labeled AIG, Prudential, General Electric, and MetLife as systemically important financial institutions. Um, this meant a whole lot of owners reporting, a whole lot more capital. Nobody wants to be designated uh, systemically important. MetLife challenge and court, they are no longer systemically important. In fairness, there is an appeal that the Obama uh, government put in place, and from what I understand, Trump doesn't care much for this anyway, so they are, they are unlikely to be uh, labeled systemically important. GE sold a big chunks of GE capital, and therefore they have had their status rescinded. They are no longer systemically important. ARG, this is recent news, just at 29th of September, uh, based on the work that they've done to uh, simplify their business, they are no longer systemically important, which leaves just Prudential. So in all the US, with all those five, 6,000 insurers, many of whom are, are quite big, they've only left Prudential as being systemically important. Uh, I don't know how Prudential feel about that. Um, and, and in fact, with a bit of pressure from the, the Trump administration, they actually are considering dropping the label for insurers or non-bank institutions altogether. So again, may this have been a little bit of a pullback even from, from regulators on, on how important is this. Now, if you think about insurers, and let's maybe think about staffing insurers from so 30 years ago. We didn't use yield curves. We didn't measure investment guarantees. A lot of our investments, uh, maybe more of our investment, not all of it, uh, more of our investment may have been um, unlisted, a lot of property. Uh, we didn't really do some market consistency in any big way. Uh, there were a lot of mutuals around. There was maybe less competition. Uh, so there was less pressure. And arguably, there was very little systemic risk at all. Since then, things have changed a little bit, and uh, you know, while it is a good thing to know about our better derivatives and, and measure them, having those movements go through our financials and go through our regulatory balance sheet maybe can lead to us doing some of the same sorts of things at the same time to manage those risks, which can be problematic. But these are some of the typical things uh, that are, are leading shows to arguably be more systemically risky. Yield chasing, clearly that's a big deal in a European environment with very, very low interest rates. But even South Africa, insurers are, have got less lazy balance sheets. They do more work to sweat those assets to earn those yield uplifts. How can we earn credit spreads? How can we do some of the liquidity spreads? And every one of those steps, by and large, adds complexity. And there's no capital requirement for complexity in the SCR. So oftentimes, the extra return you get looks like it's free. More return, no extra capital, sorted. Um, they also tend to uh, decrease the excess of liquidity floating around inside insurers. Um, outsourcing is another one. I know the FSB does worry about this a little bit. If you have so many people outsourcing to the same providers, particularly in the system space or the unit price or unit administration space, if they have an issue there, what might they do to many, many insurers? What would they do to withdrawals and so on? So there's definitely some challenges there. And then the use of derivatives uh, and having to post margins. 
Derivatives, as we know, can be used to hedge risk and manage risk, all good. But they also can be dangerous. I think it's Warren Buffett who calls them you know, weapons of, of mass destruction or something along those lines. And there are several cases that I'm aware of, of insurers not having fully understood the marginally cash implications of having these derivatives and the market moving against them or in their favor and suddenly they're scrounging around desperately looking for, for cash. You would have seen uh, uh, in, in the BN1 favorite requirements having a liquidity risk policy. And in the highlights in the also and the, the liquidity shortfall measure, um, the FSB is focusing a lot more on liquidity, I think, for, for good measure. So derivatives and margins, complexity, lack of understanding. I, I know insurers who were buying synthetic CDOs in 2006, 2007, which didn't work out very well. Um, <clears throat> and the, 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 the cash collateral, not understanding how it's going to work or what your counterparties are. And the difficulty in understanding what those new linkages are, again, adds to systemic risk. Linkages with banks. So it's not just for the, the bank insurers themselves, but as we start moving, using more swaps and more repo arrangements rather than just investing in government bonds. Increases those linkages. Increases our exposure to the failure of a bank or systemic risk caused by a bank and similarly adds complexity and may cause uh, uh, increased systemic risk for insurers. Now, low interest rates, they're in grey because it's not really an issue for us at the moment, but obviously it's a key thing in, in Europe and maybe other parts of the world. And guarantees, it's in grey. We do have guarantees. Many insurers have moved a little bit away from them, but I feel by and large we've probably done a better job at managing those and measuring those and understand if we needed to hedge those, maybe some European insurers have done historically. So maybe slightly ahead of the, of, of the game there. But again, if you're looking for a reason to have an insurer fail, it's far more likely to be guarantees than it is to be mortality. It's far more likely to be some sort of operational event than it is to be uh, 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 morbidity. Now, these are two topics which I guess are very important. I'm not going to talk about very much, but it feels like I couldn't really talk about systemic risk without including them. So if you read about cyber risk, which I'm sure you all are doing because it's a very big topic, lots of people are worried that cyber risk is systemic because people use the same systems, the same desktop systems, the same operating systems, the same Wi-Fi encryption as it turned out from the last couple of days. There are obvious reasons why major problems in the cyberspace could systemically affect the financial services industry, but also directly the real economy straight away. Uh, distributed denial of service tax, ransomware, these things you know, are, are all over the place. It's not 100% clear to me that given the nature of insurers, that this would be a very easy lever to pull to make an insurer fail and drive an insurer-led systemic risk event. Uh, it's not like if you weren't able to transact and get your money out, get your salary out, there'd be a massive panic. Um, so again, the, the, the time scale on able to insurers is just a little bit easier. It's not quite as transaction heavy. So I'm very happy to have questions or comments or disagreement on that, but I think cyber risk is something for us to worry about, but for me, it doesn't feel like a major input into systemic risk in insurers. And network theory, most of it is just insanely cool, and you can have these amazing diagrams of showing all the different linkages between different parts of the sector and how it all could work. Um, it doesn't, it's not very easy to do um, in advance of crises. Often good to do it as a, like a diagnostic tool of what went wrong, how did this happen. Getting the actual information to understand all that is, is tricky. Uh, we do report a lot to the FSB, and, and the banks certainly report extensively to the FSB and, and to the Saab to potential regulatory authority, I guess next, a year from now we'll have our terminology cleared up. Uh, but it can be quite hard to know what the actual linkages are between one insurer and another insurer with reinsurance fees and how this is actually going to work. Many of those structures are, are relatively opaque. Uh, we, we do collect data on what the investment exposures are, and that gets aggregated through, so at least in theory the FSB could have that overall exposure or, or on the investment side. Um, but I've yet to see very useful application of network theory directly to insurance, but I do think it is another area worth pursuing. It's pretty interesting. So first thing to say is uh, I'm aware this is not actually a tsunami. The thing about good photos of tsunamis is that generally don't survive afterwards actually has to find out what's going on there. And pictures of the, sort of the, the damage after a tsunami is, is maybe just a little bit uh, uh, sad, I, I guess, to, to put up there and, and tragic. So the tsunami theory of systemic risk is basically an alternative or a complement or an addition to the domino theory. And it's emerged in more recent times and I basically feel that this is where the risks lie if they do. With the domino theory, something has to fail and fall over and hit others. With the tsunami theory, it says, well, hang on a second. What if everybody, all these insurers, had the same type of risk exposures or similar risk exposures? 
They invest in the same types of assets. They've got the same types of interest rate mismatches. Uh, they've got the same type of liquidity characteristics. What happens if their management actions are all perfectly aligned? That when bad things start to happen, they will all start doing the same thing in terms of pulling back from various activities, uh, trying to access increased reinsurance. You could potentially have a systemic risk event without a single insurer failing to start it off. Think of the tsunami. It comes across, it doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are, everything gets lifted up and moved in the same direction. That, that I think, is the, the background behind the theory. And if that's true, then you don't need to worry about just the largest insurers or the systemically important insurers. You actually might need to worry about uh, what the, are the commonalities across all insurers. And one of the easiest ways for systemic risk in insurance to migrate into the real economy is if insurers stop lending or stop originating debt. Now, again, this wasn't something that was done that much directly 20 years ago, but increasingly insurers are looking to originate debt themselves or to get involved in the corporate debt market and find ways to access liquidity premiums and access credit risk premiums and diversify that in with the rest of the business. So if all the major insurers in South Africa decided, whoa, our capital's taken a bit of a knock, uh, we're a little bit concerned, and the view from the risk committee is just stop all new origination until we work out what this is. If we work out where credit spreads are going, we don't, we don't know, we, just, we don't have appetite for risk, we don't want it to fail. If everybody does that at the same time, entities that were relying on the ability to roll over their debts won't be able to roll over their debts. New entities needing funding to maintain the operations won't be able to roll over their funding. That would place pressure on banks who'd have lines of credit drawn down, banks might fail, entities might fail, and you can see how this could end up impacting the overall economy without necessarily starting from an individual insurance failure. Uh, so so th this is, I guess, kind of the, the, the academic research around what the risks are. There's, while there's still relatively little in the way of empirical evidence, this is a theory that is getting people uh, uh, worried. Now, one way of measuring that, and, and this is probably the, the next slide or two is maybe a little bit technical, but I'm going to try to stay above all, all the formula details. What we're looking at here is basically some research that students at UCT did um, applying a fairly standard measure of systemic risk generally applied to banks and applied to the staffing context to understand how systemically risky are staffing in banks. And in fairness, this was also, having read this article earlier in the year, was partly what prompted me to do this. So they have a measure called S-risk, which is the expected capital shortfall conditional on a prolonged market decline. So what they're saying is, well, let's look at all the entities. Let's look at what would happen in a prolonged market decline, which again starts talking to the tsunami sort of model of things happening at the same sort of time. It ties in with NYU Stern, which is saying about an individual failure isn't such a big problem, but a failure when there really has been a prolonged market decline. And capital levels have already been pushed down and they're really stressed and strained the system. That's more to worry about. So again, it links into all the theory that's been done. Um, S-risk or systemic risk is a function of the size of the firm. The degree of leverage, so these are information that gets taken from uh, uh, market capitalization, fundamental information from balance sheets, looking at assets and liabilities on the balance sheets, and the long-run marginal expected shortfall, which is basically derived by looking at the relationship of share prices on the JSE and how they move together. So fairly early on, I said I would describe how systemic risk and views on systematic risk are actually going to come together. That's exactly what we have here view on how these share prices move together is becoming a primary input into a key measure of systemic risk. You then uh, calculate, uh, add up all the S-risk contributions for every individual firm, and point is every individual firm that's going to have a capital shortfall as modeled after this prolonged decline. They don't factor in the surpluses because they assume that in the short run it won't be possible for the entities with the surplus to buy over the ones with the deficit to offset that. So we only look at those with the deficit. You add them all up, and that can then be a measure of the systemic risk um, of the market. You can look at the contributions of individual insurers or banks to their total, but also the total amount as a measure of are we at a high or low historical level of systemic risk. And this might be then useful as a, uh, an indicator or in advance of measure of systemic risk that maybe a regulator worried about macroprudential issues could say, well, hang on, maybe we need to intervene, maybe we need to do something about this, what is going on? The results are interesting. I guess it's not surprising that we have the four uh, major banks at the top. I don't know whether MMI would be happy to be punching above their weight compared to Old Mutual, 
or whether they uh, are unhappy to be viewed as very systemically risky. That, that was the first one that was interesting for me. Um, old Mutual, all the way down at just sort of a 3% contribution to systemic risk given their size. Now, practically that probably comes through the diversification into the UK business and the, maybe more of the idiosyncratic risk that their share price has experienced over, over, over a period. So, but it's not obvious to me that that makes sense. You will also, especially if you work at Liberty, you'll be concerned or happy to wonder where Liberty is here. Actually, so just on, on the authors, they were fantastic. Um, they put all the papers, all the models, all the data on GitHub. You can download, you can access, you can work through directly. So that was actually really fantastic. And when I was going through the data, I found that there was some like missing data at the end of Liberty's time series. I'm like, ha, I found the problem. And I asked them, they said, no, 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 it was all fine. They, they dealt with the missing data. Um, Liberty ended this prolonged period of, of decline with a capital surplus. When all these players had a capital shortfall. Now, I don't really want to pick on Liberties, of you know, fantastic organization, but there's no particular reason for me to think, based on the history you know, that we, we, we've seen in the shows in South Africa, to believe that Liberty would just be missing from this uh, systemic risk calculation. Um, I'll probably have a couple of moments from the guys at Libfin later on saying what a good job they're doing. But for me, that, that, that's quite, quite curious. Also, problematic, I guess, is they've got Investic and Investic PLC here. It's not that clear how that's been separated out. And obviously, Liberty will be factored into Standard Bank in, in, in some way. Um, I had a look up exponents. I don't know anything about them. Um, they are financial service entity there on, on the JSE. Of course, missing from this is uh, uh, any non-listed financial services entity. So it's hardly really a measure of systemic risk in the country if it's just focused on, on the listed entities. Um, I guess it's probably not a surprise that Santum isn't there, given their different sort of market profile compared to the others, but they're not there. And then the other question I had is, well, why is Alexander Forbes up there? Why is Coronation and Signia and uh, Prescient up there? And I think what's good, because in my mind, the bulk of me, that's Alexander Forbes, that's Investment Solutions or Alexander Forbes Investment. I mean, that is a massive, massive book of linked assets and liabilities. Now, try as you might, assets and linked assets and liabilities going up and down really is going to have pretty limited impact on the failure of an entity. So what I think is going on there is that balance sheet measures of gearing slightly naively have shown these big linked balance sheets to actually be contributing. Um, when the Geneva Association talk about uh, insurers are different from banks and they have liability-driven investments, one of the key things here is, well, if you've got exact matching of your linked assets and liabilities, looking at those as if they were a bank assets and liability and are disconnected is obviously not the right sort of thing to do. So I think the research is useful and it's interesting. It's good to see the application of you know, uh, uh, outside research, which has proved to be predictive in the banking space. So again, the, the, the overall methodology isn't bad. I'm just a little bit concerned about how well it works in insurers and how well it works in linked insurers. And, uh, I guess maybe a little bit of caution around whether we, we, we take too much from this. So I'm not sure I really believe all these results, but it's certainly useful stuff to do. And, and again, major credit to the, the, the guys who did the work for having started the conversation and making the information available. Now, what's also uh, 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 maybe a little bit surprising is that in a lot of research that's been done, again, this is primarily in the, in the banking space because all the research is really done in the banking space because banks are much more systemically important, is that capital, uh, a capital ratio or solvency measure has no prediction, predictive value in trying to predict a crisis. Now, it's a bit of a controversial statement because what it does have is a prediction of how severe the crisis may be. So it is still worthwhile though, that your ability to recover from the crisis is a benefit. So you don't, don't pull your, your SCR covers down to 1.05 just yet, please. Um, what did have a, 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 a modest impact was on liquidity ratios and funding ratios. That, again, this, this whole th measure and message about liquidity come, comes back. But by far the massive, biggest, overarching, overwhelmingly biggest measure was credit growth. As banks lend more and more and more and maybe get a little bit carried away and the economy's overheating and people have forgotten what it was like to have failed last time, crises happen. Um, I, almost every presentation I give these days, I talk about a fantastic book called This Time is Different, all about how this time isn't different in banking crises and so on, debt crises. Uh, and there are these absolute, you have these times of financial regulation uh, liberalization and we remove some of the constraints, we remove some of the controls, people get very, very excited, we've, we've figured it out, we've cracked it, we've got risk management this time, There's, there'll be no more failures. 
and then there's a massive crisis and we cramp everything back down again and we add on more regulation. So it, it is, that's at least absolutely predictable. Now, uh, in my discussion with other people, uh, I thought of you know, what might be some of the systemic risks to insurance in South Africa. And these aren't in necessarily order of, of, of size, but they are some of the conversation, well, items that have come up in conversation. So cell captors, and just a reminder, in South Africa, we don't have protected cell uh, uh, rules. So the failure of an individual cell could lead to a knockover failure of the overall uh, uh, NC, which could lead to failures in other cells. And uh, the reason cells probably do belong up there is that there is significant complexity. Whole lot of different cells, whole lot of different reporting, uh, different levels of risk management in involved there. But also because a lot of these are, are captives, or they're sharing customers, or they're uh, contingent programs. And there's arguably a more direct link into corporate South Africa than there is maybe in a, a big life insurer. So the failure of an individual cell that an entity was relying on can quite quickly have an impact on the real economy. So complexity plus the link into the real economy plus the ability of that contagion to spread quite quickly in a microcosm with lots of different players and providers in the same thing. That's one of the reasons up there. Uh, trade or export credit, uh, this comes back up to the idea of lack of substitutability. There are not that many providers providing uh, trade credit, export credit, and if that entity were to get under stress and to pull back uh, providing benefits or to stop providing uh, a cover, there could be a very direct link into corporate South Africa and trade and export and so on. So again, not that we re really think these are more or less likely to fail, but there's a very clear direct link into failure of the real economy. Uh, retrenchment risk, this has been a, a, an issue close to my heart for a long, long time. Not because I'm getting retrenched or anything, um, I hope. Um, but retrenchment risk and recession and credit defaults, it feels like in the last five or so years, it's been like this constant looming threat of terrible economy, uh, retrenchment experience, being high, but maybe not as high as I would have expected it to be, and an obvious relationship between markets and recessions and credit defaults and retrenchment risk. So those are interconnected. So we talk about where there might be interconnections between insurers and banks. This is one of those areas where things are, do move quite closely. And again, if you were to think about share prices moving, these are things that would affect insurers in the relevant markets and banks. Now, retrenchment risk is a relatively modest risk for most uh, insurers. Uh, enjoyed the presentation by uh, uh, some, some guys from, uh, uh, on PHI yesterday, talking about how the strong link between retrenchment and, and PHI claims experience. But by and large, the big players don't have huge amounts of retrenchment risk directly on their books. Some of the bank insurers, the credit life providers, there are others for whom this is a, a major risk. Um, balance sheet management activities, and again, there's a little star there, because in theory, balance sheet management is supposed to be about managing risk and allocating capital optimally and making sure we've got good ALM and we've measured all the Greeks and the, and the deltas and we've got our hedges in place to moderate risk and mitigate risk and get a better return on capital. And those things are good. Those things are important. They have changed the risk, probably lowered in some places. But again, complexity, uh, sweating assets to get higher returns, uh, recognition of excess liquidity within the business and then using it and investing it in liquid assets to get the benefit from that. Uh, complex models, complex hedging strategies, um, going into special purpose vehicles and conduits, maybe being the guys originating debt. There's a lot of reasons here to be worried about this area and as much as I'm quite excited I mean, and happy to be involved in the development of this over the last few years, for me it is really a key area to have very, very close eyes on and make sure you've got good uh, uh, second line function, so on, looking, looking over it. Loan origination, I've spoken about this a few times, uh, but you know, many entities are looking to originate loans directly to access the, the highest yields possible. Insurers are aware that particularly with their annuity books and some of their five-year guaranteed endowment type products, they've got huge amounts of illiquid liabilities, and they are then in a fantastic position to be able to earn an illiquid premium by going into illiquid instruments. Along with that, naturally comes some credit risk, and again, a little bit of credit risk is probably a good thing. Depending where credit spreads are, it can be a good bang for buck. But the thing that I almost find is always missing from credit risk appetites is any assessment of where the current spreads are compared to the risk. So you might look at you know, the total amount of credit risk we want to take on, you know, and, and I think it would, it would be unfair to say that the guys in the business making the decisions aren't aware of spreads, so that's fair. In terms of the more formal risk appetite statement, there's never a measure of what's the return for this risk that we're taking on. And we know credit spreads and spreads overall are, 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 are uh, uh, liquid that you move around. If insurers were to stop lending, uh, that would be quite a, a quick way for systemic risk to potentially affect banks and the real economy. 
exposure to government bonds and state-owned entities is an awkward one. Um, I, mean, I know many entities are cautious of the exposure to state-owned entities. I know insurers who've got significant state-owned entity exposures in their annuity books and don't particularly want to have to try to get out of those, so they're holding on to those. Um, but we, almost all of us will have some exposure to government bonds. And what are you going to do about that? <laughs> what, what, what really is the option here? It comes back to the thought, well, you know, if government, government defaults on its RAND obligations to South African entities, we've probably got a range of other problems. So is that something we just said, well, that, that is just that we can't manage and we just live with it? Uh, I know for the, the reinsurers, you've got typically parents from outside South Africa looking very closely at this. Uh, it's a, probably a, a sharper issue for them. Can they default on their obligations just because a government in one NC, uh, area where they happen to be operating uh, defaults? Uh, for me, that's quite a tricky one. And then bank insurers contagion risk. Um, I know the FSB always asks the bank insurers and the insurance board, what would you do if the bank failed? So it's a bit of an awkward question to answer. What would you do if your shareholder were to fail? You know, because we, we don't think they're going to fail, but if they failed, this is what would happen. Um, and I think, in fairness, it, it is an issue. Most of those entities are sufficiently well capitalized that they could probably manage a business rundown scenario. But the uh, uh, impact of an insurer failing, not able to provide the credit life cover, which would have an impact on the lender. Uh, so the bank could definitely be affected by problems with the insurer, and the insurer could definitely be affected by problems with, within the bank. Um, and if you get those major entities getting into trouble, uh, you can see that the, the domino or tsunami effect going through the banks. Um, I guess over the last 10 years, through the global financial crisis, there were some scary moments with banks and insurers and, and how they, they, they manage the process. So again, we haven't had an actual failure, but maybe it would be a little bit naive to assume that things weren't fairly close and fairly hairy at, at various times. Um, concentration industry. This is usually one that people say, but we, our industry is so concentrated. We know concentration risk isn't really systemic risk, but doesn't it contribute? Um, the South African insurance industry is actually not particularly concentrated. This is the uh, Herfindahl Index. You basically take the market share of all the entities in the market and you square it and you sum it up and you either express it as a number out of one or 100 or, or 10,000. The graph I found expressed it out of 10,000, so these are the various measures. And I mean, there's no absolute cutoff, but you can imagine some different lines of where it might be considered concentrated. Um, and I think uh, above you know, two or 3,000, you start getting somewhat concentrated. South Africa Life is 800. So way at the bottom of that chart, and non-life is 650. So South Africa isn't a particularly concentrated insurance market, as it stands. Um, we always, any sort of measure about the, uh, especially life insurance market in South Africa, you need to remember that premiums here will be counted, including savings premiums and linked investment premiums. That so maybe muddies the waters a little bit, that maybe you know, the signatures and coronations and investment solutions are big in the insurance world, but not in the insurance world, if you know what I mean. So no, I don't really actually think that concentration in South Africa is a, is a major issue. And back to the Sami model, some of the thinking is actually that it could be these smaller players getting into trouble and putting back on their activities that actually might give rise to issues rather than the largest players. So my second last slide is, so what? Um, and this has been hopefully a somewhat interesting journey, but like, what do we do from here? So one of the questions that I always encourage people to ask is, are we earning a premium on the complexity risk that we're taking? If we want to move into some strange, non-vanilla, exotic investment vehicle that promises an extra three basis points, are we really comfortable that that three basis points is worth it? Uh, there is no SCR component for basis risk. So if you've got a little bit of an imperfect hedge, it'll appear that you've reduced your capital immensely, but there's nothing actually there for the basis risk. Are we happy that everything we've actually done, there's, something that there's no liquidity ca calculation in the SCR, and I, and I firmly believe there shouldn't be, but if you then take on additional liquidity risk or you decrease your excess liquidity, it can just look like free money, free return, because there's no um, denominator there. So my key question is, are you happy you actually, where you are taking on risk, you're aware of it, and you've got some way of, of measuring that? Do we have reliable, and by we, I mean the insurance industry and the regulator, do we have reliable measures of systemic risk? Do we have some sort of pre-instant indicator that can say, right, things are getting hot, we better watch out? I don't think we do. Is, is my, my take. Some of the measures that come out that, that, that prove to be really useful and really encouraging in the US for banks, I'm not at all convinced are less really worthwhile here. 
Uh, I know the FSB does collect those, those, those scenario results, and I'm sure they aggregate those, and maybe they could see those overall measures go up and down, so there could be some good work there down there, but I think we could probably do more in this space. Certainly, we believe systemic risk is important. How mature is our liquidity risk management? And are we building adequate protections into surrender values? Now, the surrender values one is tricky because, you know, a few years back we had all these restrictions on surrender penalties for very, very good reasons, protecting consumers, good value for money, and so on. But by limiting what you can do with the surrender penalty, it does mean that in certain run-on funds, run-on insurers, surrender scenarios, liquidity risk actually could come to, to the fore. So that's an interesting one. Liquidity risk management, uh, I've seen very mixed views on this in different insurers. We get a lot of space for it to be improved. And on the non-life side, you know, the, the liquidity shortfall indicator that we have to calculate, I'm not sure it really captures time and de delays between reinsurance recoveries and what we actually have to pay out as claims. So in my mind, the liquidity risk for short-term insurers is quite different for life insurers. It's going to be fairly hard for a claim event in the life insurance world to give rise to real systemic risk. On the short-term side, maybe there could be more liquidity crisis. Um, and then are our reverse stress tests, because we all do our reverse stress tests, right? But are they, as we do them, are they adequately informed by the tsunami model? Are we recognizing what would be happening outside of our little world when these things happen? Or are all our tests just very internally focused on what would happen to us and how we would respond without any view of what might happen elsewhere? The point about the stress test is to find the point of business failure. And I would suggest that when you are failing, it may well be that other insurers around you are at least taking strain, and other banks might be taking strain. Um, I know one insurer has the view that uh, repos uh, add some sort of level of risk that you, if you're invested in uh, uh, illiquid debt, but there'll always be a market. The price may change, the spreads may change, but there'll always be a market. That may be true, but if the market says it's a 100,000 basis point spread, that's not really a market. So what might be happening in those severe scenarios when you're trying to offload your instruments when trying to de-risk a profile, and what is the impact of you trying to de-risk potentially going to have on the industry? Right, early point, do you want to fail alone? Are you happy failing alone? Are you happy failing with everybody else? It's, it's, there's a moral point here I think we need to think through. And, and that's the same thing on a recovery plan. Uh, I think recovery plans, resolution plans are in our future. I think they probably can be quite useful, uh, but again, it can't just be an isolated view. And then are management actions responsible? Um, bear in mind the impact they're going to have on others. So the question I'll leave you with is, is systemic risk a wolf in sheep's clothing? Is it something we actually really should be worrying about, or is it a sheep in wolf's clothing and we've completely overdone it? Uh, I think the jury is still out, but my sense is that we've come a long way as industry to recognize that maybe systemic risk isn't unimportant, and maybe regulators have realized in the last few years that it is important backed off a little bit from some of the slightly knee-jerk reactions and are now trying to find an actual practical way to deal with it. And many of the measures that we see from IFSB around group supervision and ORSAs and uh, resolution planning down the line and increased focus on uh, liquidity risk and macroprudential focus, those are all the sorts of things that in fact the Geneva Association recommends. So having industry bodies finally starting to agree with some of the developments on the regulatory front. Thank you very much. We have some time for questions, uh, which I'll be happy to answer. Thank you. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, I think you've left Sheeperine to peer over my shoulder. Okay, any questions uh, from the floor? Maybe oh, we've got some a question over there and over there. Hi, David. Thanks very much for the presentation. Um, you mentioned earlier on the, the whole effect, the domino effect, um, and almost looked at it from a point of view of a small player causing a big player to eventually collapse. Uh, what about the other direction? Um, even the example that you gave with Suntum and their losses, I mean, their loss of $3 billion is protected by reinsurance in this particular case. Um, if they had a reinsurer fail in that event, um, wouldn't that effect not have been much bigger from a systemic point of view? Yeah, it's a, it's a key point. Uh, the domino theory doesn't uh, uh, require to be a small insurer. In fact, the standard model says the bigger the insurer, the bigger the impact is more likely to knock over, over others. Uh, I mean, the, the failure of a reinsurer is almost always in my set of stress and scenario tests for a responsibly managed short-term insurer uh, because the, especially for smaller players who rely so heavily on that risk, it doesn't need to be in there. 
Um, could an event in South Africa, even a CAT event in South Africa, cause one of our primary reinsurers with their parental backup fail? I guess I really struggle to see that. So maybe we are a little bit lucky that our market is still relatively small in the bigger scheme of things. So in the short-term space, it feels uh, like it might be a challenge. In the life insurance world, though, and I talked to a lot of my clients about pandemic risk and just reminding them that their CAT policies don't actually cover pandemics. Um, and my understanding is that the appetite from a global reinsurance perspective for pandemic risk is very limited because it would quite possibly be a properly systemic global issue rather than, rather than locally. Hi, it's Lindsay Wanless from Old Mutual. Um, David, do you think that the, the possibility of one insurer investing in the subordinated debt of another could have systemic implications and whether that might deserve regulatory uh, attention? Yeah, so that would be one of the ways of increasing the interconnectedness between insurers, because there are not a lot of them. Would, would specific regulatory intervention be required? I don't know, I haven't thought about it. Uh, the amount of subject out there at the moment is not, is not massive. Uh, to my points around insurers themselves considering uh, systemic risk and whether they are contributing to systemic risk or not, I think insurers should probably be at least somewhat responsible and think about that and not, uh, not drive unnecessary interconnectedness. It feels like a, a fairly difficult space for the regulator to get involved in terms of exactly what instruments and when and, and how would be restricted. But if you were looking at your stress and scenario testing, particularly your, your reverse stress testing scenario, where you're worried about stress in the overall industry, you would need to be looking at what the impact might be on different uh, instruments and subdebt from another uh, insurer would be on the list. So I guess my hope is that it would be considered as part of your internal risk management processes uh, but yeah, it's a good point that that is a source of increased, uh, increased interconnectedness. Okay, um, any other questions? I know it's just, be oh, we've got two over there. <laughs> uh, hi David, um, so uh, uh, just two, two things. One, on regulatory or, or, or tax risk, you know, if there's significant sort of almost like judicial action, class cases, that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't know whether you could have a sense for what the size of that type of uh, impact could could be, and then the the other one that that came to mind is a is if there's a crisis of confidence or significant brand issue, which which is maybe more of a domino effect, um, and basic insurers um, cl closing to new business. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens to a number of insurers if there are those types of, uh, of crises? Thanks, Jack. The, the first question, I guess, is two parts. Is the, the regulatory step. Like, let's say Sam was thrust upon us with three days' notice you know, in 2009. That would have been a massive issue. I don't know if I'm just um, hopelessly optimistic to think that a regulator, especially our regulator, you know, is pretty, pretty mature, pretty sophisticated, would think about the implications from a regulatory perspective of sudden changes. The tax one is a little bit more worrying because we've seen a lot of uncertainty in the tax space, a lot of change in the tax space, a lot of different views, sometimes seemingly odd views and very, very different interpretations, uh, potentially leading to you know, real liquidity crunches. So the tax one does worry me a little bit more. But again, I feel that although we've had a couple of false starts and a couple of odd wording, by and large, through the process of industry engagement and with the, the input of the FSB, National Treasury, we've typically managed to avoid the absolutely terrible outcomes. Uh, but yeah, the ability of somebody in one fell swoop to make a new rule that changes everything is always going to be there. And I don't know that there's very much one can do as an individual entity against it because we always have to comply with the rules. Uh, the second question, yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, I think, I mean, branding, you, there was always you know, the queues of people outside Northern Rock in the UK was what, you know, the, all of us at Sky News during the global financial crisis. People get worried, uh, and it's often that, that sense of rumors and worry and concern that precedes banking crises. The ability to withdraw your funds and withdraw the money and the, the, the maturity mismatches there is, is a key issue. Uh, 
if a major staff insurer or actually any staff insurer had a, a, a reputational issue and people wanted to withdraw their policies or not sell new business policies, uh, I don't see that as systemic. I think most of the time I would hope that the insurers would be able to manage that uh, uh, rundown scenario. I always do worry a little bit about expenses and uh, the extent of expense reserves and expense capital and so on, but there have been some examples where insurers have been closed to new business and there have been very, very, very few outcomes where policyholders have ended up with, with, you know, without funds. Um, and even if it were to fail, even if some policyholders were to lose out, I don't really see it being a natural contagion, a natural systemic link to other insurers. Uh, I mean, during the global financial crisis, I moved my money from, money from one bank to another based on my view of the risk profile. Uh, when uh, Fedcher failed, I guess there were plenty of people who had concerns, but I don't think that they, from my reading and from my memory at the time was fairly late in the day when I was involved, uh, I don't think there was a whole sense of panic. So I just think that the insurance model is different, it's slower, it's, it's, it's steadier. I still don't think it'll be a systemic impact. Uh, to build maybe on the example you gave about taxes a minute ago, I wonder if um, the fact that uh, we all are operating under uh, similar or identical uh, regulatory regimes, risk management regimes, uh, uh, creates, I'm not sure if it's systemic or systematic risk, but uh, um, uh, two examples. Uh, you know, what if we were all recording our balance sheets based on a hypothetical kind of theoretical market valuation of liabilities and assets and the market uh, tanks on December 30th? Uh, what, what does that do? Um, or another example uh, from an analogy in the U.S. We have the Mississippi River that runs down the center of the U.S. and its, its goal in life is to spread out widely in the spring floods. The Army Corps of Engineers' goal in life is to build ever larger levees that prevent that from happening. And that's quite successful in avoiding small floods, but the consequence is the catastrophic flood that happens. So uh, 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 sort of similar to uh, Taleb's uh, anti-fragile, you, you do too much to protect against the small risks, you actually become more uh, susceptible to large risks. I think to the answer to your first part, I think it is, yes, I agree, and I'd say it's probably systemic and systematic. Uh, the, the, the poll I've been running on my blog, one of the uh, uh, options was around does uh, regulatory rules herd us into the same sort of investments? You pick a certain discount rate or yield curve as the right yield curve, and there'll be natural pressure when people wanted to buy up those instruments and hedge on that base and be exposed to the same instruments and then any change in, in, in that can be problematic. Uh, so yes, I think, I think there is a, a risk around that. There have been some players attempting very uh, specific things around hedging market risk. Wouldn't it be great if we had a very, very low cost put option that paid out exactly at the 99.5th percentile calibration of the standard formula and gave us no protection on the other side of that? Now, that, that's not only what you're talking about, but there have been some players who've been basically optimizing too close to their exact models. And so you get a very, very low SCR number, but the actual risk is very, very different. Um, but I mean, this isn't news. In fact, there is a responsibility of the head of the actual control function to assess whether the impact on the SCR from the risk mitigation is actually relevant on the actual level of risk mitigation rather than just optimizing tune exactly to the model. So there's, there's, there's some dodgy stuff that can be done there, which is, is, is a little bit separate. Um, the, the new world of risk-based capital is going to teach us some things in the coming decade. I think in the life insurance space we've had something relatively similar for a while without maybe all the same level of rules, so maybe the, the learnings there won't be quite as much. So I still remain relatively optimistic, and although the also can't always be the cop-out for everything, you know, the requirement for you as an insurer and as a board and as risk professionals to assess your own risk and really think it through and brainstorm those scenarios and think about road stress testing, what could happen, I feel certainly the, the objective is to immunize us a little bit from just overly focused on a standard set of rules and regulatory rules. Um, but then again, there's a wide range of maturity and also processes, so I don't know if it's always working that well. But 
short end to a long answer, yeah, I think it is a risk. Okay, <clears throat> we've got time for one more question. Okay, going, going. All right, then it's lunch. Uh, what, what about one more round of applause for David? Thanks for the presentation. Really enjoyed that. And it's lunch. <laughs>